Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast from FilmStage.com. As always, I am your host, Brian J. Rowan, and with me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello! We also have Bill Graham. Woo! And joining us once more, our special guest, it's Allison Shoemaker. Hi! How are you? Oh, I'm well. How are you? Fantastic. Would you, uh, before we begin, like to get your plugs up front and let everyone know uh, who you are and what you do on the internet? Oh, sure. Um, I am the TV editor over at Consequence of Sound, where I'm also a senior film writer. And you can find my stuff at COS, at RogerEbert.com, at The AV Club, at, I don't know, CBR, The Takeout, other places, um, and also on the podcast's TV Party and Podlander Drunkcast and Outlander Podcast. Yeah, so you've got just all kinds of experience, and anyone... <laughs> With any interest in anything, can find something that you do that they will be interested in. Yeah, I'm one of those like mediocre at all traits, master of none situations. <laughs> I'm one. Of, I'm one of those guys. Not true. I'm great on drag queens. So we've, there's that. Anyway. Okay. How, how many podcasts are you recording right now, Allison? Simultaneously, <laughs> all three of them. I'm, oh wow! Yeah, I'm currently in an. I'm like basically, I'm like Jack Jack, and I have made my way to multiple rooms at once. And in another room, I'm hammered and talking about Outlander. And in the third, I'm writing Bachelorette haikus, which is a thing that we do on TV Party. Okay, I was thinking that that was a joke. That is something that is real. All right. Oh yeah, Bachelorette haikus. That is absolutely real. Well, well okay then. Um, Speaking of places on the internet, you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, uh, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Find all of our episodes at thefilmstage.com and rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Uh, we love getting your comments there. It helps people find a show, blah, blah, blah. And if you have longer thoughts, you can email us, podcast at thefilmstage.com. Or if you would like to yell at us in real time, you can give to our Patreon and become part of our Slack channel. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash the film stage show. And for as little as $1 an episode, you get access to our Slack channel where you can talk to us and other listeners and voice your thoughts. And um, yeah, you also get access to a bunch of cool raffles and giveaways that we do every now and then. So check that out and help us to create more great content units just like this one. <sighs> all right. <laughs> I keep trying to get through all that stuff just faster and faster each week. I should just record it and just cut it in at the beginning of an episode. I don't know why I insist on doing it live. One more thing, however, before we get into our review for today, and that is a word from our sponsor. And that is Mubi, the online streaming cinema, where every day they introduce a new film for you to watch and you have 30 days to watch. So that means you have a constantly rotating selection of 30 films that have been curated specifically for the enjoyment of the movie, movie-watching audience. Uh, we were talking about the fact that they have Last Year at Marion Bad on there now, 
along with a number of other fantastic films that you should check out. You can watch them on your iPhone if you're a monster. You can watch them on your iPad, your PC, your smart TV. You can download them to take them on the go. And they are all fantastic. So check it out. I'm sorry. What are you, you going to say, Michael? Sorry, I just wanted to uh, spotlight one that is on Mubi it, that um, ties into our recent episode for First Reformed. Uh, one of Paul Schrader's lesser known uh, solo works is Light Sleeper, which is on Mubi at the moment. Yeah. And I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but I've heard very good things about it. It's apparently about loneliness and crime and, you know maybe uh, about spirituality because you know he likes what about light sleeping (laughs) i don't know (laughs) there's no gods oh michael (laughs) (laughs) so yes that is light sleeper from paul schrader 1992 it is on movie now so check it out for your free 30-day trial go to mubi.com slash film stage I'm just great at the banter today. <laughs> You're terrible, always. Um, so, <laughs> just laying into Michael. So we are here today to talk about the newest Pixar film and the newest film from writer-director Brad Bird, and that is The Incredibles 2, which is out in theaters now. Once again, the cast is Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter, Sarah Vowell, Huck Milner, and they are also joined this time by Catherine Keener and Bob Odenkirk, Samuel L. Jackson, and many, many others. This who voices Jack Jack? You know what? Uh, the, he had a credit. I don't know who it was, though. Eli Fusile? Fusil? Um, a, a, a person? Um, a person who is old enough to wear a bow tie and like a white tuxedo jacket. We are looking at the same picture on IMDb right now. Yeah. Incredibly. Jack Jack attack. The Incredibles video game. The Lego Incredibles video game. This appears to be his cash cow. There you are. Interesting. It's interesting too that uh, Dash did get replaced. Uh, it was Spencer. I, of course, I exited out of it. It's like Spencer Best. Huck Milner is a replacement for the not, previous Jack Jack. I don't think that I or not that. Jack Jack Dash. Jeez, yeah. well, that was a terrible episode, and I apologize in advance. Oh God, did we? Why did he get replaced? Did his voice just change, or what's up? I mean, it has been fourteen years. So did he die? I, I, God, I hope not. The Simpsons <laughs> I mean, kids have been the same voices for 27 years. Well, the Simpsons kids have always been adults, though. Well, this was... is Pixar's problem for trying to get the new guys <laughs> in there. Damn you, authenticity. How goddamn dare they? Anyway, how about... It's Spencer we... Fox. I'm sorry. I feel like I should get the name right of this person. Thank you, okay. Michael Snyder. I'm done. <laughs> I was going to give a synopsis. Let's just play the trailer and then we can use that as a hard reset to try to all center back <laughs> and get this episode back on course. Here is the trailer Ugh. on Incredibles 2. So, are we going to talk about it? Why? The elephant in the room. Why elephant? Mom's new job. It's time to make some wrong things right. Bring supers back into the sunlight. We need to change. 
change people's perceptions about superheroes. And Elastigirl is our best play. Better than me? <clears throat> All right. This movie picks up immediately after the end of the first Incredibles with the Parr family engaging in combat with the Underminer. And uh, from there, we move on to a tech communications billionaire who wants superheroes to be made legal once more. And they decide that the best way to do that is a Blitz PR campaign that has Elastigirl as its front. So while Elastigirl is out jet-setting and saving the world in an inversion of the first film, Mr. Incredible has to stay at home and take care of the children, including Jack-Jack, whose powers have manifest and are manifold, if that's the correct word. <laughs> um, so let's talk about this movie. First, when we, when we first begin, I'd like each of us just to kind of give our thoughts on The Incredibles and I guess where it stands in the Pixar canon. And then uh, launch into our basic, general, outline, concise thoughts on this movie. So let's start with our guest, Allison Shoemaker. Thoughts on The Incredibles, and then your thoughts on The Incredibles 2. I mean, I like The Incredibles. I don't know how you can not like The Incredibles. I'm now prepared to have all three of you say that The Incredibles is seriously overrated. But um, I mean, it's great. It's fun. It's joyful and entertaining and the action sequences are great and it's never been my favorite Pixar movie um, by a long shot. I just for whatever reason um, it's never really clicked with me. Um, so I guess I'd put it um, definitely ahead of Cars um, ahead of most of the sequels uh, maybe ahead of Monsters Inc. It would depend on the day probably Um but, uh, you know, I have a fondness for it, I suppose. Um, the Incredibles 2, I feel kind of similarly, except for this felt a little less original to me. It felt a little less fresh, uh, a little less heartfelt. Um, and I still had a great time, so who the hell cares? All right. Bill Graham, what about yourself? Sure. Um, I really enjoy The Incredibles. The first one, I just recently rewatched it and anticipation of Incredibles 2 and uh, I just enjoyed it from beginning to end it's it's gorgeous to look at um, and I just love all the little details and touches that Brad Bird adds to the action and uh, just so much personality in that film and uh, brief thoughts about this film right yeah um I enjoyed the action quite a bit. I enjoyed the look, the feel. Uh, it was refreshing to kind of get back to these characters literally minutes after the first movie ends. Um, and that was nice. The story, because it's uh, further kind of detailing the mythology, I think it gets a little muddy uh, or really muddy. But overall, I really enjoyed it. So. All right, Michael Snydell. Um, yeah, The Incredibles was – it's never been like one of my uh, favorite Pixar films, kind of similar to what Allison was saying. Um, but I and I don't want to come off as a contrarian and say it's overrated, but I, I think I had personally overrated it because I can say that rewatching it in the past week, um, it was weaker than I remembered. And 
Though the people in Slack uh, differ with me on this point, I, I think it's a movie that hasn't aged well in terms of visuals, but I think the art design is still fantastic. Um, now, this second one, I, I feel like on on paper, this is really what you want from a sequel because it is, you know, it's it's pretty inventive. It's trying to change around some of that, the dynamics from the first film. Uh, as Bill was saying, the action is, you know, this is probably the best superhero action you're going to see this year, you know, uh, pending if Ant-Man two is a, you know, fucking masterpiece or something. But, um, yeah, the story, (laughs) the first one's fine. Um, but I, I guess, yeah, it, it, it was kind of, I just did kind of find it exhausting uh, by the end. There's, it's just kind of a juggling act. There's so many different stories that it's trying to tell. Um, and I just didn't find it even as thematically interesting as that first one, which just kind of has, you know, like a laser beam focus. And this movie just is going every which way. And I have to admit, like, every one of those different movies that it's showing are pretty compelling, <laughs> especially uh, one involving a raccoon. But um, <laughs> yeah, but I just was, I, I, I was a little tired and done with this movie even before the twist happens. <laughs> All right. Uh, so as far as my thoughts are concerned, um, first Incredibles is top three Pixar um i watched it last week with my daughter i will say that um the visuals hold up spectacularly michael Snyder, as always is completely wrong the art direction also is great the action is fantastic everything blah 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 <clears throat> i think that um it was really pushing the boundaries of what they could do it was the first pixar film that was centered on human protagonists so they were really kind of pushing the envelope with technology there and um, it's fantastic, and it's a modern classic, and it's up there with Wally and Ratatouille as the best things that Pixar has done. And yeah, that's that's what I'll say. Um, Incredibles two almost cannot ever be as good as any of those movies, just because it's a sequel, and we know these people, and so the surprise is gone. However, I mean, I can't. Eat. I liked Inside Out. Like, I thought that was a really good movie. Coco, you know, I've watched it because my daughter likes it now and I had to show it to my wife. I've watched it like four times in the last two weeks. And that is a movie that like grabs me by the throat and makes me cry every time. I think it's got a great message and everything. But I think this might be the most honest to God fun I've had with a Pixar film in quite a while. Um, Finding Dory, I found really perfunctory and... Inside Out is like clever and awesome, but it just, I don't, I don't know. It just didn't feel as engaging on like a visceral level. Whereas this film, just like the action is crisp and awesome and the, the humor is on point. I could do, and we'll get into it more as we go deeper into this. I could do without the tired old trope of the dad who can't handle shit at home, especially as a dad who constantly handles shit at home. Um, so I'm just getting real. Real fucking tired of that between toilet paper and pudding commercials and now this movie and every sitcom. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm real fucking over it, guys. What like, pudding commercials are you watching? I'm just like, every, like I think I'm thinking of one pudding commercial specifically, but it might actually be a yogurt commercial. And it's this dad who's like trying to, because his wife is on the phone talking about like all the great desserts she's been having. 
and he like keeps moving her pudding or her yogurt out of the way because he's too much of an idiot to read the fucking labels <laughs> to realize that she's talking about like yo play whipped delights or some nonsense. But anyway, I'm getting angry and we're talking about The Incredibles 2, which to my mind is like the best superhero movie since the first Incredibles probably just in terms of like action and like joy and like goodness and just like all around like story and i just like i don't understand why i guess it's just because it's animated and we're able to accept things better like but it seems like like thinking back on infinity war like all these people have these powers and it still seems like everyone's just punching each other and so it's really good to see a movie that's inventive and awesome like this so i would say that if you were alive and have a pulse and like goodness and joy in your life, go see The Incredibles too. Way to alienate the dead people. Jeez. <laughs> I know, and after watching Coco for all that time, I mean, <laughs> I really should have more respect for the dead. Remember sorry, me. But, I, <laughs> but yeah, so um, I don't know how much we can talk about before getting into spoilers. Because I think, you know, as with uh, most superhero movies, finding out the plot that the villain has and everything is half the fun and I don't want to get into that but I wanted to talk about I guess do we Brad Bird famously was never going to make a sequel to The Incredibles and then he said I finally come up with like a good enough story to warrant it I thought like I just listened to an interview with him and he pretty sure he said like no I was definitely going to make one and it was always going to I mean I think he had a story, but he didn't want to make it at the time because he was being pulled in a lot of different directions. And he didn't realize it was going to take 14 years to come back to this. Um, because w- what I basically heard was that he came back to Pixar and was like, hey, guys, I'm ready to make Incredibles 2. And they were like, cool, where's the story? And he told them the story and they're like, that sounds good. We need to work on that villain plot. Uh, let's work on that. And so they kept in typical Pixar fashion, they kept working on it, working on it, working on it. And he said that he rewrote the villain plot, particularly of this film more than any other, because his kind of long overview thoughts were going to be that the first film was going to focus on Mr. Incredible and his abilities. And then this film was going to focus on, uh, obviously, uh, not Mrs. Incredible. What is her name? Elastigirl. And so, uh, that was his basically kind of way in. And then they were going to explore obviously Jack Jack and stuff like that. So, um, but no, it's, it's interesting that this is fucking 14 years later. Like what a, and uh, like he, he's even joked. He's like, gotcha. Y'all can't call this a cash cap or cash grab. You know, it's like, this is 14 years later. (laughs) I think you can still call it cash grab. Sure. sure. Uh, Especially coming off of Tomorrowland. You know, mm. was that four years ago? It was that was a while ago now, wasn't it? Is it three years? I don't know. Does someone I want to do due diligence to? I, I, I hear, I hear typing. Is typing. I hear Please typing. stop and use your phone or something because, dear God, Tomorrowland <laughs> was three years ago. It was 2015. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, as they were doing all of these sequels and stuff people kept saying like when are we going to get the incredibles one though the the incredibles one is the one that makes sense it's a superhero family and you know it it ends with them about to engage in yet another epic fight 
And there was just this saying of like, well, we got to get the story right. We don't want to jump into it. We don't want it to be a cash grab. We want to get the story right. So do we feel as though, in general, the story that we have been delivered is a story that uh, has been gotten right and was worth waiting for? Allison, I'd love to start with you. Um, I found the story to be far and away the most disappointing part of the movie. Um, it did all the things that I thought it was going to do, except for one thing that was a lot less interesting. Are we in spoilers or not? I don't remember. No. Okay, cool. Again, just like general. Um, yeah. So it's, it's going to be weird. Um, We're going to get into spoilers so quickly for this children's movie. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the individual pieces of Incredibles 2 are great. The individual set pieces are terrific. Some of the individual threads are really fun. As a whole, I found it kind of underwhelming, and I was pretty disappointed because I don't think that a story needs to be super complicated or um, quote-unquote groundbreaking to be original or exciting. The plot from the first Incredibles isn't, you know, reinventing the wheel or anything. Um, but this just, I feel like I got everything about the story pretty much from the trailers, uh, with almost no surprises that weren't just cool individual surprising moments. And as a collection of cool individual surprising moments and terrific action, action sequences and fun character moments and one amazing raccoon related scene, um, <laughs> I feel like it was a little undercooked uh, and particularly in the relationships, which to me were crystal clear in the first film and here were um underdeveloped and a little frustrating, particularly in the case of Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl. Michael Snydell. Yeah, no, Allison kind of got it spot on for how I was feeling as well. Um, yeah, it's those individual uh, parts again, that are great. And it, you know what? I, I want to relate that specifically to Incredibles because I was saying that it's a little thematically uh, less thematically interesting. You know, uh, even back in 2004, The Incredibles had some envelope pushing for a Pixar movie, but uh, you know, like suicide or a, a, a attempted suicide of a bystander is like the impetus for the majority of The Incredibles. And there are jokes about like affairs and like, it's kind of like uh, a perfect example. Someone can lift up as um, a, a kid's movie that has a lot of adult humor that some things become a lot richer. Like if you're older um, and Incredibles two, like weirdly it doesn't, doesn't have that like it's kind of odd in the way that those relationships that Allison was previously referring to um and and i uh especially want to more from the violet and mr incredible relationship um in the sense that it feels like it's about to be about something and then it's it's not um and i think that's you know i think the first one is not only very straightforward but it's very emotionally direct as well so when those big moments happen you know they really do grab you by the by the throat and and you those relationships and the stakes are always clear um and it's it's not totally this movie's fault that it's trying to deal with so many different things but um it just needs to be vastly streamlined and i i wish they would have dug deeper into any of these, even if it meant sacrificing an action beat or two. I'll say, I mean, you know, the first Incredibles had 
what was a pretty straightforward like midlife crisis storyline grafted onto being a superhero. So as Michael was saying, it's it's basically the story of a person who's having an affair, but his affair is with crime fighting, <laughs> and <laughs> and so that makes everything kind of easier to go along with. This one is a lot a lot different. It's it's about like shifts in gender roles and you know working towards progress and like invention versus commerce in a weird way. I feel like there's a lot going on here. I think that in some ways though the like the message contrasting with the villain's plan in this movie sure. is less opaque than it was in the original Incredibles. Because I know that people even today are like, well, The Incredibles is a Randy and Ubermensch story and blah, blah, blah. And in this one, I don't feel like people are going to have that much like leeway to try to read into it some sort of like right-wing message. And I, I feel like especially based on that first scene, I kind of expected a different movie than what we got. Like that first scene is kind of really a red herring for politically where this movie goes. <laughs> Which, uh, you, you mean the kind of interrogation that's going on? Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, and then it's it's weird. There's a lot in this movie that you can kind of read in. It's it's like, it's, um, like for a while, part of me was like, is this a civil, like, is this even more than the first one? Like a really in-depth civil rights allegory, um, you know, trying to make people feel like they're not illegal, you know, making people feel comfortable with like the way they were born and all of that. And I, I feel like, there's a lot more peppered in here. And again, most of it is stuff that people won't have to wrestle with trying to think if they're, you know, dealing with an objectivist philosophy. But at the same time, it, none of it feels 100% as solid as that one idea in the other film was. So like, sure, I get that. But at the same time, I don't know. I, I enjoyed this. And even, that's even, you know, with the immense problems that I have with just like, turning Mr. Incredible into, you know, a hairy stay-at-home dad who can't figure out shit. Bill Graham, any thoughts? I didn't read that much about what it was going to try and do, and I didn't read that or watch that many trailers. Um, In fact, the trailer that you played is relatively new to me. Uh, I had never heard it before. And so um, that kind of gives even more details and plot to, like, what's actually going on in this film than what I was expecting. So I went in fairly blind, I would say. And so there is a lot of unexpected uh, kind of twists and turns that it goes through that I was not expecting at, at all. Um, I didn't know how Elastigirl was going to be the main focus of this film. I didn't know how, uh, you know, Mr. Incredible was going to end up where he ends up. Um, and there's a lot of joy in like those little details, but I think, I think the politics and I think the mythology here is, is, muddled because the first film did such a good job of just plowing right through it and it gave you enough to not really question what was going on and this film has to live in that reality and it has to further expand it and i think it's a very very difficult job doing that because the reality of having these superheroes around and you know planning that nugget of okay but we have to pay for the damages like the people have to pay for the damages and you know how do we regulate them and how do we do this and all of that 
kind of comes into focus in this film. And I think it's it's difficult. It's difficult to understand how we would ever get to this point to begin with. And it's difficult to understand how we basically have all of these superheroes fighting crime. And I'm like, where's where's like the bad guys? Like, where's where's like the superhero bad guys? Like, are there none? Did they all just kind of like disappear? Because Syndrome at the end of the first movie is basically the only one that really kind of exists still, and he's not even superpowered. He's got gadgets, like he's he's basically a Batman, right? And so I'm just like, how how did we get to this proliferation? It, you remember you remember when we were talking about John Wick and how like the second John Wick we started to realize like holy shit, there's a lot of assassins. Like who's <laughs> who's supporting this marketplace? Um, and so that kind of reminds me of this film in a way. Um, I, I live for the exploration of some of these powers in the way that this film does it though. Um, I think that's the most interesting thing that this film gets right and it nails and nails again and again is that this film, you know, I think a lot of people will point to the Elastigirl sequence on the motorcycle as just something that's just like, holy shit. They, they like took some, an idea and they actually like ran it through and like really went for it. But even the other people's powers in this film are really kind of explored in interesting and neat ways. Even Frozone is given a lot more kind of to do here um, in interesting ways. So I, I, I think I think that's where this film kind of really breathes and really, really kind of takes off is in the action beats. And it to that point, Mike, I think if it sacrifices those, this film, even if it refines some of those other things, I think maybe it's it's a lesser film for it. Mm. I mean, they they do sort of explain what's up with the supervillains, though, is basically they're like, yeah, we just let them do whatever they're doing. Sure, but I, 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 the I think of the movie, but but I mean, you know what? but that's the only like the underminer is the only one we see throughout the entire movie. That's not totally true. I mean, they have a villain who they're fighting who's not super. OK, can we we got to clarify that later. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting into I, I don't I actually really want to go back to what bill was saying there but i want to i want to kind of come back to that in spoilers honestly <laughs> all right um well i i'm actually i'm good to go into spoilers now i mean i don't want to i walked into this movie not knowing who the main villain was or really what it was going to be beyond like elastigirl becomes like a pr campaign person and so i want to kind of preserve that for people but i'm good to go into spoilers sure. now if y'all want to rock out and talk about that let's do it cool yeah so we're doing spoilers for Incredibles 2. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's really good. I enjoyed it a lot. Not as good as the first one, but whatever is. And um, yeah, here we what are. What kind of cinema score did it get? Who I'm totally kidding. I'm, told, I'm totally kidding. <sighs> God damn it. I just want to fucking end this episode right now in all honesty. Um, <clears throat> what a pointless inquiry to ever make about any movie. Anyway... So the Incredibles too. I, I need to start somewhere because I couldn't do this earlier, and I need to for you guys to hear this. Okay, so in Bow, the short before. Um, okay. 
everybody was fine. I, I need to say this in spoilers because the exact moment where she eats the bow, a baby started sobbing like it was about <laughs> to die. And it like was sobbing so hard. And it's that so made amazing. the rest of the audience laugh. Like as in like, oh, this is uncomfortable, but kind of great. <laughs> I um I was sitting next so to a group of very amazing. like loud vocal enthusiastic movie watchers and when she ate that that dumpling boy, the person next to me was like, "Oh shit!" And I was like, "Yeah, right." <laughs> and and uh, yeah, that was that was hard. Uh, there was definitely crying at the end of Bow in my theater. Um, that baby was not okay. <laughs> that what? That baby was not okay. No, that baby. I mean, like that was kind of my thing. I was like. There are a lot of children here. I went to a nine o'clock showing on a Thursday of this movie because I was really excited to see it. And there were a lot of children in that theater. And I was like, they all just saw a mother eat her child. (laughs) And luckily he comes back and we realize that it's all been a metaphor. But yeah, for a while you thought this woman ate her magical dumpling. Um, Well, and and the the best part about that is that she's not like happy about it. Like she's not playing it off as if it's anything but she just ate her child. Like she's real sad about it and real broken up about it. And so like just imagine being a kid and being like is I don't like not knowing what a metaphor is and just being like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) What is this? Oh my yeah, god! No, it was intense. Um, it was amazing. <laughs> it was good though. I really liked it. Did y'all? Did y'all like the uh, the short before the film? No, <laughs> no, Michael, not a fan. Because again, joy, happiness, love. I enjoyed it. I, I think it's it's interesting because this kind of touches on something that I I I saw someone uh, in Ku Kang uh, like just praising this short to the high heavens and i think this is definitely something that speaks to um immigrants or uh i guess what is it second generation immigrants or something like that where it's basically like you know people not like me (laughs) i'll say that uh i mean specifically asian but definitely like just immigrants uh second generation immigrants specifically like watching how their parents react to them like becoming a little bit more americanized and stuff like that i liked it all right great (laughs) i mean i i thought it was very charming and the perfect length and um yeah i was about to say coming off of the fucking yeah jesus oh my god coco i was like oh it's five minutes and it's over isn't that how things are supposed to work Oh, God, I still have nightmares about that. Do you, did they make you watch that before Coco on Netflix? Was, I think it was Keith Phipps who was making a joke, being like, "The only way to preserve the actual Coco experience is to make you watch the unskippable Frozen short before Coco." Since, since we're talking about it, I will say very briefly. Oh no! I showed my wife Coco. She was crying from like minute one, pretty much, and then didn't stop until it was over. And by what it being over, I mean 20 minutes later. And afterwards, she's like, I don't understand. I know that you liked it, but I don't remember you telling me that it was that good. And I told her, like, if you recall, my hatred for the Frozen short (laughs) really overshadowed how brilliant Coco was. And she's like, oh, my God, that's right. Because you came home and your first words were, Coco is like brilliant that fucking frozen short. And then you just went on a 20 minute tirade about how terrible the frozen short was. 
So, yeah, unfortunately, I like I got to go back and listen to that Coco episode because I feel like I was effusive in my praise for it. But who knows? I might have blacked out and just talked about the Frozen short the whole time. Um, but so this movie. Let's talk about it. First of all, we've all been hinting at the raccoon scene. That's the best scene in the movie, right? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, my girlfriend and I were walking through Target and we walked by the toy section. And as I always do, because I am a child at heart, I looked towards the toy section and I noticed that they had a bunch of Incredibles 2 figurines out. And I noticed one of them was Jack-Jack and it had a raccoon. And I was like, what the fuck? Wouldn't you get a raccoon? <laughs> and so like me and my girlfriend watched it. Uh, a couple of nights ago and as soon as the raccoon showed up like i i started bouncing in my seat and, <laughs> and she was like oh no <laughs> that's his his partner and i was like yes this is this is amazing i am so happy that i kind of knew ahead of time that he was gonna have a raccoon so as soon as i saw the raccoon i was like oh this is gonna go down so yeah that was a yeah. lot of fun i i had no idea this raccoon thing was coming and this is this is kind of the kind of stuff that like Brad Bird I feel excels at because like I'm watching Jack Jack watch that old timey movie and I'm I'm hearing like the raccoon out there and he looks at the raccoon and then he looks back at the movie and I'm like oh my god they both have robbers masks and then the baby just like gets up and starts going for it with this raccoon <laughs> like it's a robber and like that is just like I got to say wordless like Warner Brothers awesomeness going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Like that is and then it just the places it goes the way that like they have legitimate like f- fist fight. <laughs> it's just that so raccoon awesome. that raccoon holds his own against like a, a super powered <laughs> magic baby. Like like the, the, props to that raccoon man i don't know i don't know what, what that raccoon's been eaten but it's uh it's it's on it <laughs> i was a little upset that the raccoon did not come back i i guarantee that raccoon is still somewhere in the par's yard he's just biding his time waiting for the next opportunity to strike raccoons are pernicious they are determined they are filled with hate they want your garbage they will take it from you at any cost they will chew holes through the screen netting over your windows they will burrow under your floors raccoons are determined hateful trash pandas i am surprised that that baby won Allison, do you need to talk about something? <laughs> no, I, I think I've made my thoughts clear. It was a great scene. The least realistic thing about it, and that includes the laser eyes, is that the baby won. That's definitely the least realistic thing. <laughs> I do love how Bob comes out and is just like, oh my god, and there's not a scratch on you. Like, you're so powerful. This is awesome. It's, um, no, it's fantastic. And I, I kind of wish... This is like this probably could never happen, but I kind of wish that like we could just have like a week in the life of the pars with their powers and everything and just like hang out. Like I this is the other weird thing. I don't know if you guys had this, but I feel like this is the most any audience that I've been with has laughed in a movie in like five years. Like every every little this film was very, very like really landed with the people I was watching with. Oh. That for me, that would definitely be girls trip. That's the loudest 
theater I've been in in quite some time. But people, I mean, definitely with the audience when I saw Incredibles 2 was very enthusiastic. They had a good time. There were lots of kids, which is my favorite way to see a Pixar movie. They were talking and asking questions and calling things before they happened. And it was adorable. And I had a great time. But um, Girls Trip was the most raucous audience. It was such a hoot. More than Magic Mike XXL? Oh, pretty close, actually. Um, yeah, pretty close. Those are pretty close. The Shallows and Magic Mike XXL are like the best theater experiences I've had in the I past am, like, I am five years. I am furious that I saw The Shallows with a critic screening. I would have loved to have seen that in like a Fucked up. But no, this movie, like, when Vi- like, I have to watch this movie again because I missed numerous lines of dialogue. Like... When Violet comes down and she's invisible and you just see her pajamas as she's sobbing and gets the ice cream. Like <laughs> that was good. people were screaming when Edna finally like realizes the value of having Jack Jack around. Like when she is walking oh him out God. to his car, I didn't hear a single line of dialogue because <laughs> we're just like having a ball with how nutso Jack Jack was and how enthusiastic Edna became. Jack Jack's like pacified behavior when he's with Edna is was making me laugh so hard. <laughs> And then just um, the action scenes, like every time that Elastigirl had to do something, again, the very vocal, enthusiastic group of people next to me, first of all, if they're listening, I don't think <laughs> shouting, that's fucking right, really <laughs> at the end of a Pixar film is what you should be doing, but I'm still right there with you. <laughs> there was another person in the audience who screamed out, shit, yeah. So like, I don't know, like apparently... And I was thinking about this because I thought it's a Pixar film. It can't have that big of an audience late at night. And then I remembered that the first one came out 14 years ago. So if a kid saw it when they were seven, they're 21 now. And they could 100% decide to go and see this late at night. And so I had a mix of like people who were like that or maybe like me, you know, who I saw it when I was like 16 or something. And I was like, that was really cool. I can't wait for the next one. And then there were the younger people and then there were the full on families and so, like, the kids were cheering, the parents were cheering, and all the <laughs> unattached, you know, young adults who just wanted another Incredibles movie were swearing like sailors. <laughs> Truly, it was the melting pot that our forefathers envisioned. Um, oh, the other great part was the the family that barely spoke English sitting next to the man sitting next to me, who in the middle of bow, I think, no, I think right after the woman ate the dumpling, turned to the man sitting next to me and said, this is Incredibles 2. And the guy had to explain to them, no, no, this is a short before the movie. Don't worry. <laughs> this, isn't like, this isn't like a part of that movie. You're going to have to know. They would have been real confused oh. before Coco. Yeah. They would have been like, uh, I, I don't like this. Well, I this think I told good? you about the, the, the Hispanic families multiple yes. in front of me who all turned to me and were like, you're a you're a you're a white guy. Do you know what the hell's going on? And I'm just have to be like, I this thing has to finish. I'm here to see Coco just like the rest of you. So I don't know. I think I've never. This is like two times in a row. One obviously with a lot more reason than the other. Like, do you think that Pixar has to like tell people that there's a short in front of their movie? I feel like most people know about it, but then again, I don't know what most people think. Well, there is a warning about epileptic uh, or, or strobe the strobe lights. Because oh, okay. I, I guess enough people said things about, you know, I, I, I guess probably that, about that. that one sequence is probably the one that I guess really bothers people with. Cage? Yes. Yeah. First of all, yeah. fantastic fucking sequence. Second yeah. of all, that's a perfect segue into talking about the villain of this piece, the screenslaver. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. How interesting. What, okay. <laughs> what, so what did we all think about the screen <sighs> and how that uh, whole situation resolves itself? Oh. Yeah, you know, the thing that struck me is usually if I think I know what the twist is and then it isn't and it's something else, that's a really good thing. But mm-hmm. here, the really obvious twist would have been much more interesting. Like the really, to me, the really obvious twist was, oh, well, this corporation is going to benefit from having superheroes on their payroll and being associated with them. But in order sure. for them to be legal, they there has to be a villain. So they've created a tech villain for them to fight and win and etc. Right. As opposed to like, well, superheroes were forced to go underground so they didn't save my dad (laughs) (laughs) but some martha shit (laughs) i'm actually well i'll I'll let you finish allison but then i'd like to Um, counterpoint i just I, i didn't have any sort of connection to it at all like i don't think that every villain needs to be uh killmonger right or like time or death or things like that as they so often are in pixar films but it just it felt like incredibly you know when she's talking about well it was too easy that was just too easy that's how this felt it's like all they had to do was get the glasses off everybody which by the way no violet could have just gone invisible and run around and yanked the glasses off but didn't i mean she tried to do that and and void was able to like foil her Sure, but she wasn't always fighting Void either. And especially once they were all there, it just, it felt a little easy, but fine. You obviously, in order to make a story move forward, sometimes have to bypass the thing that seems really straightforward and simple because the story is more interesting if you do. And I accept that. But beyond that, it was like, there's this reveal, everybody shows up, especially once they're all in the boat, it felt like entertaining because they were good entertaining action sequences but i had no connection to what was going on emotionally at all there was no doubt that they were going to win i never doubted that anything was going to happen to the family that anyone was at risk that anyone's heart or mind was going to be changed it never occurred to me that we were supposed to think that the screen slaver had a point like it did, like somehow they were partly right i didn't feel my beliefs were challenged it really? was that yeah, that was really interesting to me. Because I thought, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, I feel like the clarity in the the villain of this movie is a lot better than in Syndrome's case. Because Syndrome is an arms dealer, which is not great. I mean, he, he yeah. talks about selling weapons to foreign governments and terrorist groups. But his whole idea is like, I'm going to give things to the world because when everyone's special, no one is. And I just want everyone to be like on a level playing field. And obviously the problem then is that no one that you're giving them to, well, not no one, but many people that you give them to will not operate with the same level of personal responsibility and goodness that these heroes seem to be doing. And I, in the screen slavers case, I mean, she is, yes, because it is, it is the sister and the brother sister duo of, of venture capitalists or telecom billionaires. And her whole thing is like heroes, much like technology, like make us weak. Like we become dependent on them and fail to do things for ourselves. So she is like the person who's saying like, yeah, you know, the banks have insurance, you know, everything like that. You know, if my parents had just gotten into the safe room instead of trying to like do something about it, they'd be alive. And in her eyes, like dependence on someone or something else makes you weaker so she's like i didn't give my technology to my brother because then it would have gotten out and he would have made millions off of it 
I'm using it to make people afraid of technology so they can take some personal agency and like not be dependent on it. Much like I'm going to destroy superheroes because I don't want people to be weak expecting someone else to save them. See, I think the thing about uh, really you describing that almost clarified it even more for me, Brian, because I think that the thing about Syndrome is that he's really convincingly petty to me. Like he's an idiot and he's not like thinking about the consequences um, of what would happen again as an arms dealer of what someone who actually has malicious intent beyond themselves what they could do. But the thing about Screenslaver is that her motive is is so self-serious. It's so, and her whole bit shtick where she does that thing where we spend too much time looking at screens and not having experience like that was so eye rolling. And, and just like, again, like a a little bit darker, grittier uh, play on what syndrome is trying to do. Like, like there was just something when she's making that, the, are you talking about the scene where Elastigirl is like tracing her? I'm talking about, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm talking about each time Screenslaver shows up on screen and kind of monologues. Right, each one of her monologues. Is, the monologue coming out of the pizza guy is is just there to create the villain that Elastigirl can then go take down. Like she needs that monologue to go on long enough to be traced so that Elastigirl could take him down. And then everything else can work. I don't think that that is like, that is obviously partially her philosophy, but I think she in that moment has gussied it up in order to keep people's interest and to give enough time for Elastigirl to find her, her Patsy. To that point, to Brian's point, it's also interesting that like, while that monologue is going on, you very much can barely make out what, is actually being said because the music is playing and Elastigirl is zipping around all over the place. And so like, that was one of the points where like, all I heard was slavish devotion to screens and then blah, 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 blah. And I was like, Oh, okay. I'm not really supposed to be hearing this. This is, this is for kind of the world, not for the audience. If that makes sense. Right. I mean, because in that moment, Again, it's, it's, they're trying to give her the easy villain to take down. And so they're saying all these platitudes, you know, that sound like the type of thing your grandmother would say. You know, we didn't have cell phones in my day. We actually had real conversations. You know, we cared about reality, not reality TV. But like at the end of the day, that's not 100% what her issue is. Her issue is we've made ourselves weaker through dependence on things that can easily be taken away from us or that just won't come through for us. So why why try and help your brother bring them back? Because she wants to get every she wants to make it so that like there will never be another conversation about bringing them back. Like, I mean, I recognize wants, that, but she wants to go ahead, on that sorry. boat. <laughs> but like, she didn't need to do anything, and they would have still been illegal. Like, it's I, I don't know. It's I don't, no, but she like <laughs> she she wants to take it from like. Not in fact, they were being even hunted like she wants people to turn on them violently because if like there's a difference between superheroes are causing to like superheroes cause too much damage and like sometimes save people who don't want to be saved is one thing. But if the last thing that you ever saw about a superhero until a like quarter of the like developed world's ambassadors were slaughtered by them was superheroes basically declaring war on humanity. 
Sure. Like that it's basically like the the Nightcrawler thing in the second X-Men. It's like, you know, if if the if the mutants are out there but they're not doing anything, we don't want them, but you know, they're staying on their own, but if suddenly one of them tries to murder the president, you can get people to try to murder them. But I still think that there is like a backwards quality to that plan. Even as you're saying, yes, as you're describing it, I understand like the extremity of what she's trying to do. But like when, again, when you compare that to syndrome, like syndrome's plan is, is so clear from, you know, start to execution. And and there is something about this. And I think also, I also think that Catherine's Keener, Keener's character is really, pretty interesting and kind of unusual for a Pixar film until she's revealed as a villain. Like as this interesting, uh, you know, sister of a, again, of a tech mogul who's like building gadgets and wants to like lift up Elastigirl specifically. Like there's a really interesting relationship there that Pixar almost never digs into. And for that to then like, then morph into this, obvious like mega megalomaniacal villain was just like so disappointing for me to see like it, it and, and i just can't get past that this again feels like a reskin syndrome with a slightly different philosophy i don't know i mean it might be like the polar opposite of syndrome it might be like his inverse because syndrome wants everyone to have this power and this person wants people to realize, like, how... Then nobody should have made themselves. Yeah. I think part of the reason that I had a hard time connecting is with Syndrome. And, and I don't think The Incredibles is a perfect film, but I, I did really enjoy it by saying it's not one of my favorite Pixar films. That's like saying, like, I don't know. It's <laughs> like, I, it's, like, it's not one of my favorite Godfathers. Films. It's just really, Pixar is really fucking good. So if it's good, it's good. But part of what made Syndrome such an entertaining villain is because I know people like that guy. They just happen that their thing isn't weapons dealing and they don't have an issue with superpowers, but it's constantly, there are people out there who find a way to center themselves in everything and to make it about what's unfair to them, what's been taken from them, mm-hmm. um, what they deserve, how life has treated them badly, even when it has nothing to do with them. That's the kind of person you encounter all the time. And I think that that's more about the character and who he is than what he does. And I don't know what it is about who Catherine Keener's character is that relates to what she does. I like other than a very specific event in her past, it doesn't seem to actually come out from, it doesn't seem to be tied to invention or to her sibling relationship or to her personal relationship with technology or to her gender or her relationship with Helen or basically anything else other than the death of her parents. And I'm not saying that's not a hugely important event in a person's life. Of course it is, but it still felt divorced from who she is. Like I couldn't say, well, it's hubris or ego or insecurity or anger or selfishness or something about her, who she is inside. It all felt like plot mechanics and not personal mechanics, if that makes sense. I find that interesting mm-hmm. because I didn't, I didn't see that in that way at all. Like I, like, like I've said, you know, I found her to be, you know, wholly a a like well-rounded and 
clearer villain than Syndrome was. Um, I was a little surprised that it wasn't, as you had said, like a manufactured villain just to help these people get the supers back, you know, so they could own them or, or do whatever. Or, you know, so that then people would watch like superhero TV and they'd be able to. <laughs> you know, like, there's a lot of ways this could go and I kind of appreciate the fact that one of these people is like the idealist who is trying to make the world a better place and is he's just he doesn't know the mechanics of that well enough to understand that like he's being used like I think that there's something nice about that <laughs> I don't know if that sounds crazy no I, I think I, I think that's fair yeah I just I just didn't think we spent quite enough time with Bob Odenkirk. And then to relate that to something that feels kind of uh, superfluous at the end for me is, I don't know. I just think the, the um, other supers that they introduce are all pretty bland and, and even void has the most personality and definitely the coolest power. Um, people seem to think she's, Inspired by Kristen Stewart, which I don't necessarily see, um, but the hair is lopsided, and because she's you know has that certain awkward uh, awkward amiability. But um, yeah, no. I anyways, my point being that uh, again, I, I think that that Bob Odenkirk's character really. Um, it feels like too much of an afterthought, especially at the end with how crowded it is with those like extra supers. I mean, did you guys have any feeling about uh, those characters? I mean, I know we only probably spent three scenes with them, but, I, but I mean, they get a Let's, good part of the climax. I liked void and I thought reflux was hilarious. <laughs> I, I think turtle like old man vomiting lava. I mean, like what's not to love. <laughs> I think one thing that's interesting is to kind of pull back and realize that most of these superheroes besides Jack Jack have basically one one function and one person or one power, right? And mm -hmm. that's that's all they really have. Whereas and so you're saying these characters or their powers are a little bland, but I would say what's what's not bland about gazer beam having <laughs> like you know and mr Basically incredible yeah. like like mr incredible yeah. like okay he's strong cool like and and i guess a little not even like a little fast like he's he's normal human fast i guess you know um and what's for cool, his size. <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah 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 um and so like elastigirl really is the one that really makes your your draw drop but and and in the first film, she does find a lot of inventive ways to kind of utilize her powers. But this film really shines in showing like what she's capable of. But we don't even see what what the villains are capable of at full power until really that in sequence battle when they're being taken over. And that's when we really kind of get to understand like, oh, like they actually have like they could stand toe to toe with Frozone and Mr. Incredible and all the, uh, the rest. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think, mm. I, I don't think their powers are bland. I just think they are not given enough time to kind of showcase what they're able to do. Whereas Elastigirl just, you know, flat out that motorcycle sequence is just so <laughs> wild. So good. 
and and just just jaw dropping in like showing okay this is what she could actually do like like she could get on a motorcycle she could unhinge it in the middle and then like jump over buildings and you're just like what the fuck is this like this doesn't this is insanity and the only reason that this works is because it's an animated movie and you're just like this works <laughs> like wanna, like yeah i mean i don't i don't, I don't want to have to turn this this show into the every week i find a new way to shit on marvel but i feel like this time it's warranted because we're talking about superheroes but like in infinity war just because it has all of them in it like what is everyone's power like spider-man has the powers of a spider but he also has a crazy suit and iron man has a crazy suit and Captain America is super strong and has a crazy shield. And Black Widow has a leather outfit and a bunch of crazy weapons. And Black Panther has a crazy suit. And um, what's his face? Uh, Falcon has a crazy suit. Ant-Man has a crazy suit. Like, these are just a bunch of people in power suits. And, like, Iron Man's power suit, first power suited dude, is somehow even more powerful now because it's got nanotech. So he's basically like a mixture of Clayface and the Hulk. And like, it just becomes a mishmash of all these people whose power appears to be being a video game character that can get power ups. And so like, you say that like, Void or Reflux or Screech are like bland, but like, I think that the joy from these characters comes from the various inventive ways that they find to make use of what they can do. Like, I don't, I, I like the simplicity of like, you know, uh, this is, this is dumb, but like my daughter is almost two years old and she doesn't know what most objects are for. And therefore she is able to use them in ways that you would not expect, which can be horrifying at times. And I just like, I like that. I like saying this person has one power. It is to make portals. And how will we utilize that? And then this person's one power is that she's Elastigirl. She's stretchy. So how do we do that? And the amount of things that they find to do for Elastigirl rivals anything that we've seen, even in like the, the Fantastic Four movies with Mr. Incredible, not Mr. Incredible, Mr. Fantastic, who usually just like gets longer. And she is like creating shapes out of herself and creating parachutes and like slinging her arms like Spider-Man. Like that's not dull to me. That's super interesting and innovative. But, but what I'm saying is it's, it's not necessarily just the powers. It's that I didn't find any of those characters memorable and that they're, they take up nearly the whole climax. Like, like that's the thing is that uh, from in terms of character moments, there's like, there's no one in this movie who is new who I want to spend more time with. Like that that's you, what I would say. You have to? It's the I, Incredibles. No, it's not I don't have to, but I'm saying what that it's something I What about the fucking I, raccoon? <laughs> 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 okay, no, that's, check, checkmate that, Bill. Yeah. Right, that's that's what I'm saying though. It's 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 that it is a Pixar movie. So like, that's why I am like, that's why I speak of being underwhelmed. Like when I, like, I, I, again, I'm going to remember some of these set pieces is like, Oh, Hey, that was a, a pretty, a pretty good set piece. But like, I'm not going to remember this as a, it's a very good movie. Cause it just doesn't hold together for me. Like I don't, at all. I, I like at the end of the day, like I don't want new characters and sequels as crazy as that may sound. Like, 
I like James Bond and Money Penny and Q and M. And like, if you give me a character who I can kind of half remember during the course of the movie, that's fine because I'm there to watch James Bond do his thing. And I think that part of the problem that a lot of movies have had recently is that they are still trying to stuff an entire new cast of characters on top of the characters that they already have. So like, you know, someone like Void or (laughs) Reflux, they're good enough that if they show up in the next movie, I'll be like, oh, sweet. But I don't need to sit here and and care about them that much. But I'm saying the movie doesn't rationalize how much time we do spend with them. In the same way that I don't... As much time as you're making it feel like we do? Did anyone else feel like we spent a long time with those characters? I mean, I felt like we spent a pretty significant amount of time with them. Um, You know, I... The issue that I had with them is the issue I have with basically all of the characters who aren't Mr. Incredible in this movie. And sometimes Elastigirl, uh, depending on what kind of scene she's in, which is that I didn't know how they felt about anything that was happening. Were they angry? Were they ashamed? Were they confused? Were they embarrassed? Were they excited and proud when all of these big climactic things were happening? I had no idea. So I don't think their powers were bland, but I think that, and it's fine if the movie is more concerned with fun, exciting set pieces than it is with making sure that the characters feel like characters. But, um, but that was my frustration with them. I find that weird though. Cause I feel like void especially is given a lot of that. Sure. She's given that she's really, really into Elastigirl. And she is a person who for her whole life has felt like she is different and should be ashamed and hide herself. But now that this like, you know, pro supers movement is going on, she can come out of the closet, put on a sparkly uniform, and and dance on Pride Day. Like you're absolutely right. Day. She then, does tell us exactly that, and then she gets transformed into a sunglasses controlled evil bot, and then she uses her powers. Right? Like I, yeah. that's, 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 that's a, we were definitely told that, but I don't know that we were really shown it. I mean, yeah, I, don't, I feel it's, like her, it's unfortunate. Her, her, I don't, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't agree or understand like i feel like her performance if you'd like to put it that way like when she first meets elastigirl really puts forward how excited she is that she can finally like be what she was born to be and then when she is selected to help elastigirl she is equally as excited and like yeah everyone gets turned into a sunglass who is typing (laughs) okay we could, yeah, like everyone gets turned into a sunglass zombie. Like that, that happens, but it's a thing that they overcome. And then I don't know, like, are they supposed to sit down and talk about it before they, they stop the bad guys? Like, I, I guess I'm curious as to what changes you would put into place to m- ameliorate the issues you have, either with their underdevelopedness or like their over expository development. Well, I'm not particularly interested in trying to rewrite Incredibles 2. Um, so I don't know what I would do. I'm not a screenwriter. I'm not an animator. I don't have any interest in being either of those things. Um, what I do have an interest in is is caring about the characters on screen. And with The Incredibles, I was 
deeply invested in all of those family members and what they were experiencing. And here I was deeply invested in having a good time. And that is a perfectly good reason to go to a movie. That's great. But I, but it didn't, I, I didn't feel my heart break when Violet realized that the boy she liked didn't remember her. And I didn't, um, I have any idea really what was going on with dash other than that he had to learn math and that's fine. And I didn't really know what was going on with Elastigirl other than that she was having a good time doing her job and that that was great for her. And that's lovely. It's one thing really until the plot twist happens, but it's a good thing. There was obviously plenty going on with Mr. Incredible. And while I wish there'd been a little bit more wrestling with him realizing that he was, jealous and envious of his wife and maybe thought that she wouldn't do as good a job as he was. And what does that say about their marriage? And what does it say about him? It's a, not a particularly long movie. There's not always time for that. And that's fine. But I wasn't all that connected because it wasn't about relationships and it wasn't about growth and it wasn't about change or fear or any of that stuff. And that is why I think that it is a fun, enjoyable movie that I will absolutely watch again in the future, but that I probably won't think about very much once we're done with this podcast. I'm, I, I guess, you know, just I'm not going to like turn into a big thing. But yeah, I think that like change in fear is like the entire arc for both Mr. and Mrs. Incredible, you know, Elastigirl and Mr. Incredible. Like she is worried about leaving the kids alone with her husband and taking on this this whole assignment by herself and he is worried about like failing his family and in in turn failing everyone else in the world who is superpowered yeah but didn't you also say like half an hour ago that that's a kind of a tired well to return oh, to totally tired as, sure as tired as shit. so yeah, I, I, like, I wasn't into that when it was in mr mom either <laughs> i wasn't into it when it was in the the terrible remake of miracle on 34th street that i watched when i was a kid i just um if that's a story you're going to tell, then tell it really, really well. Make me really invested in what they're doing and how they feel. And I, it just didn't ever get to that point with me, which doesn't mean it's a bad movie. Like I feel a little bit like I'm defending myself here and I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's a good movie, but I think it's a movie that wasn't particularly invested in its characters. And I can tell that because I'm the freaking easiest mark in the entire world. I don't care about anything. I cry at commercials. I had to tell my partner, Tom, the other day to stop playing a cover of a song from Hamilton because it was making me cry too much. And I had to type like I, which the easiest. Uh, it was helpless. Not even a sad one. It's not even a sad song. Um, it was the, I think it's the, the May Hamill drop. Anyway, it's not even a sad song. It's just that sometimes music makes me cry. I could, I am so easy. I'm like, if, if movies are, uh, a, a grocery store. I'm the person who buys everything in the impulse checkout line, regardless as to whether or not you need it. I will cry. <laughs> I'm not even hungry. <laughs> yeah, I will cry at anything. I will get into anything. And this, I had a good time with and was not engaged with. I, I personally, I have been asked many times if I had to pick one character from a movie that describes me, what character would it be? And I almost always say Violet Parr. That was my whole childhood was wanting to hide and and sort of also wanting to be out there and trying mm-hmm. to figure out being how to able do to see things. it yes and see it while hiding like, and here like, it was yeah. like 
well, now I have more confidence and a boy likes me, but now he doesn't like me. Oh, dad. That's just not it. Did, none of them gripped me the way that they did the first time around. And I still had a great time. I'll watch that motorcycle fight on YouTube as soon as it's mm-hmm. there. Right. But it just it's probably there. Like, already. The raccoon. <laughs> yeah. The raccoon immediately. I want that immediately. Mm. That reminds me, there's a really good, I, I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's a short called Jack Jack Attack. I think that's what it's called on uh, the DVD. Yeah, where it's what happened with the babysitter. Mm-hmm. So it's a short that's really fun. Um, yeah, okay. Here, let me say something positive. Uh, Michael Giacchino's score in this Holy shit. Is, is excellent. Like, I one of the I best. Think, I didn't think it could get better honestly and i think he he topped it because i was just sitting in the theater and even like during the credit sequences and stuff like that i was just like this this soundtrack is amazing and Uh, fun hamilton related fact since we've already brought up (laughs) hamilton alex lackamore who is the music director for hamilton and did a bunch of the arrangements and is responsible for all that amazing bass and shit um also arranged i think he said four pieces of the score i think that um he was, was sent not the themes the, uh, the themes for mr the incredible songs? alaska okay, girl okay. and um violet and dash frozone? oh yeah okay. or maybe frozone i'm not sure um but yeah he's good too it's great it's all great speaking of hamilton and animated films that fall under the disney label i finally <laughs> saw moana and um that First of all, a lot of problems with that movie. There's a lot of great stuff in it, but I have a lot of problems with it. I will say, though, that I have never... Moana's read... better than this. What? Moana's better than this. Oh, no. That's not true, even a little bit. But what I'll say oh, is... It is. It's, it's not. Anyway, so what what I will say oh. is... I've oh, never, God, I've that never, drives me crazy. I've never... Sw- I don't want to get into a which movie is better type of thing, but what I will say is just I've never felt my opinion of a song swing... So hard and so fast as it did when that when she's having that flashback and the people are singing and I was like so on board with it. And then Lin-Manuel Miranda starts singing and I just like plummeted back to earth like a goddamn stone. I was so upset. You know, we have Allison on this podcast, right, Brian? What, what are you trying to do? I don't know. <laughs> Allison, please don't go. You gotta come back. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm here. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, any oh, any well. other big things that we want to kind of talk about? Uh, one thing that I and y'all have touched on it a little bit, but I don't think it's going to get enough credit, and I think it it deserves the credit that it it kind of gets. It it isn't played out enough, but um. Mr. Incredible basically like trying to tell Alaska that he should be out on the front lines and she should be at home. And his just whole demeanor during that moment when he's like literally listening to her gush about like being back out on the front lines is like just fantastic to me. I I can't remember another moment in a film like this, especially like a Disney film where they just put that front and center. And I was really surprised by how much we see that when they're together and also while he's on the phone with her. And 
it it isn't followed through enough because the plot mechanics ends up kind of taking like they don't spend any time together really once they're apart and so the plot mechanics basically kind of set it up to where like they have to continuously like battle this evil thing that's happening uh when they are back together so they don't have time to talk about that stuff um but i thought just that alone the amount of time they dedicated it to it in the middle of the film was enough for me to just really kind of chew on and just like like allison is saying like really kind of start to wonder and question like what is what is this relationship that this this family has been built on like how did they get together how did they see eye to eye enough to want to settle down with each other yeah, I mean, I think that one of the virtues of of this movie in the last is how much it's willing to like take an adult, hardcore look at things like that. I think this movie doesn't do it as well or as focused. And again, I just have to say, like, you know, it's a tired trope. I, you know, as much as I stand up for the fact that this movie does have like the challenges and all the arcs and stuff, yeah, I can't, I just can't get over what an easy well it is to go to. And they seem like they're going to invert it, and they do a little bit when like the kids pitch in. And you realize that, like, but again, the movie doesn't lay into it enough. Like, it's a group effort. Like, they're a team and, like, he shouldn't have to do everything for everyone. And there should be, like, some some aid that everyone is giving in their own way. But that it doesn't it doesn't do enough to really dig out of that hole. I don't know. I, I think I think his his only pitfall really while raising those kids is something that he manages to kind of overcome. He he smooths it over with Violet. He realizes like why that situation happened because that's kind of the point of like fixing that is he doesn't know what what happened and why he's being blamed for it. And he understands and realizes that like Dash's math, new math, which apparently was like a, a thing in the mid 60s or something like that. But I related it to like Common Core math now where like parents are like, what the fuck is this? Like I learned how to do math a long time ago and this is not this. And so the fact that he literally just stays up all night reading it and then understands it so he can help his son. I felt like that was like, Hey, that's him basically saying like, look, I may not be as good as Elastigirl in this particular moment, but I'm going to make up for that and I'm going to get better. And to the point where like he ends up helping his son with math. Um, mm. and I'd love to see and, basically Tully, but with Mr. Incredible in it instead of Charlize <laughs> Theron. And, no. <laughs> no, come on, Mike, you would love that. <laughs> Um, yes. Um, but yeah, we've gone through, we've gone through just about anything. Does anyone have any final thoughts before we, uh, wrap up any big things that we wanted to discuss that we haven't hit yet? Edna mode. I think, I think Mike kind of touched on it earlier, but, uh, I think that's the perfect amount of Edna. And I love the fact that like, there's a mythology there where basically she's like, you let someone else design your super suit. <laughs> like she's pissed at them. And I'm just like from moment one, when she was introduced and I love her characters, like development over it. And just like realizing like, Oh, like anytime you want to bring this baby by again, like I'm, I'm good with it. <laughs> and 
like I love like all the little details that she's found out. And I love that like she's able to suppress his powers and like track them and like predict them and everything like that. And she's just so level headed and just like and the fact that like she's voiced by Brad Bird like makes me even matter at this situation. But like, wow, like. What a what a character! You're pissed that he can at once write, direct, and voice Edna Mode. Yeah, like that's ridiculous. I uh, I, I think I think I, uh, like the rumor is that like he had like a casting call with like I can't remember who it was, but he was basically like giving her like the intonation that he wanted, and she was just like, "You got this." Like you, you do this. Like I don't need to be here. And so a nicer way of being like, no, I want you to do it exactly like this. And it's like, well, then why don't you do it? <laughs> oh, I, the one, the one thing I'll say going back to you, I think something it was the last thing I wanted to say going back to something that Brian was saying. Again, this is probably an unpopular opinion, but a part of me almost wishes, as Brent was saying, that this was a week in the life, that we didn't have anything with Bob Odenkirk or uh, Catherine Keener's character, that it would just be them dealing with the repercussions of causing you know, so much uh, chaos and commotion and uh, living in that motel and like figuring out uh, you know, relocation and stuff. Like, I, I know that's not <laughs> the obvious route for a, a big splashy movie like this, but like that stuff I felt like did have a weight that a lot of the latter, I, again, I'm not going to bring this back, but I'm just going to say some of that early stuff in the motel had an emotional weight that I didn't feel as much later. Curious. And I don't want this to become a big thing. I'm just going to, Oh no, 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 it's not even the way that I feel. I, I okay. agree with you that like a lot of that leaves the movie when they're gifted this giant house but like so many critics that I've read have been like, well, the first third is kind of nuts, but then it like finds itself and it really goes for it and it gets better. So it's interesting that you and I should both think like, I kind of wish that they were just stuck in that hotel <laughs> and that this was like an episode of Shameless or something. The Florida Project. Yeah. <laughs> the Incredibles. How many movies can we think to slot The Incredibles into? We've got Tully. We've got The Florida Project. Uh, well, Mr. Mom, it's, it's, it's already trying to do that. On on that note, it, it's interesting because this film is so much about like putting these people with all these special powers into uh, situations where they struggle, and it's not just simply because they struggle individually. Elastigirl is doing great. It's Dad that's kind of you know trying to juggle all of these these pieces at home, and it's kind of the inverse of that in the first film where Mr. Incredible is having the time of his life. He's getting back into shape. He's making a bunch of money. He's, you know, bought a new car that finally fits him and everything like that. And it's Elastigirl that's at home, like watching him go through all these things and being like, what, like, how, how is this possible? You know, like how, how is this happening? And, and that's the turmoil of the film is his relationship at home is being threatened by his success out in the real world because he's not being honest with his wife, you know? Yeah. It's like the, both of these movies basically come down on the side of like your family is your team. You got to treat them well and work with them. Yep. All right. 
on that note, cool. Let's uh, let's wrap it up and say goodbye. Uh, next week we'll be talking about. Oh God, are we talking about Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom? Uh, Allison, do, do you have a raccoon problem? I I, I want to follow up on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I, I grew up in the Midwest. I am aware of how raccoons work. I think we've we're intimately acquainted for you. <laughs> I do not have time for another podcast, but I will start working on my chat book immediately. Just oh, like a boy. limited podcast series that's just like Alice's uh, Alice Alice's Allison's in adventures in like Raccoon Land. I- I'll work on it. Yeah, <laughs> just a whole like monologue about the uh, time spent battling raccoons. Give it oh, your- there's no battle; you just win. There's yep. like what you do. There's they, raccoons are a fact of life, like, like death and taxes. It's like an addiction narrative, but raccoons. <laughs> well, I'm going camping this weekend. It's on the it's on the brain. Oh my god! All right. Well, if anything happens with a raccoon, we'll have you back for a special episode. Um, let's uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, Reinder, check out uh, Light Sleeper on Mubi. That's Paul Schrader's film coming off of our first reform discussion. There's also a bunch of other great stuff on there, and you can get a free 30 day trial by going to mubi.com/slash/filmstage. Uh, don't forget also to go to patreon.com slash show and give us your money and uh, you can get an access to our Slack channel where you can yell at us about things that you disagree with us about and um, we can talk about whether torrenting is theft or not which has been oh my god no <laughs> shut up <laughs> oh no oh man anyway burn it um, down <sighs> burn it down so that's it for today uh, let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time Allison you can find me on Twitter at Allison Shue. You can find my stuff at consequenceofsound.net, the AV Club, and rogerebert.com. And you can hear me on the podcasts TV Party and Podlander Drunkcast and Outlander Podcast, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> All right. Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me watching videos of raccoons on Twitter at CableBFG. And you can find me on the Slack channel uh, I don't know. It's it's been fiery in there lately. It's it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Passions I'll just are, say that summer heats up. So does the blood uh, of the average moviegoer. <laughs> I, I I I know shit is hitting the fan when I when I like don't read Slack for I don't know a couple of hours and then I come back and I miss like fifty messages and I keep scrolling up and I'm like, when does this start? Where I was left there? <laughs> yeah, it's it's intense. All right, <sighs> Michael Snydell. You can find me guiltily eating uh, bow on Twitter at uh, at Snydell. Uh, and um, oh, I was actually on a podcast with two of Allison's colleagues, uh, Blake Goble and Dominic Van Mayer. I talked about Kubrick's first three films on uh, the latest episode of Filmography. All right, and you can find me, of course, at thefilmstage.com, my personal site, dearfilm.net. And, um, I don't know, Instagram, at Brian J. Rowan. Twitter, at Brian J. Rowan. Letterboxd, at Brian J. Rowan. And if you've been able to pick up on the pattern there, you can find me just about anywhere. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Tune in next week when we're going to be talking about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Just for one day.